actually saying this is how it should be. This is how you should be praying for it. This is how you should be encouraging it. This is how you should be lobbying government for it. This is how you should be praying for each other in regard to it. And this is how you should be living it out if it's applicable to you in your own life. So we come to these verses, Matthew 19, 1 to 12, to divorce or not to divorce, that is the question. In coming to these verses, and it's not surprising that Jesus does, last time we looked, uh, he came to this issue of forgiving, that's absolutely central to uh, the life of the Christian life, isn't it? To those who are inside the gospel kingdom, that we are prepared to forgive each other. Not surprisingly, he also comes to our relationships one with another. And what could be more central to that, what can be above that, what can be closer in that, than the marriage bond between one man and one woman. And yet in our generation, that has never been more under threat than it is now, has it? It's estimated that the UK divorce rate is running at 42%. I mean, just stop and think about that for a moment. 42%. In 2019, in Britain, over 100,000 couples got divorced. 100,000 couples. Is it surprising that every one of us has either experienced divorce or we know someone close to us who has experienced divorce or someone who is thinking about it or considering it or making inquiries regarding it? Is it any wonder that youngsters... I remember having a conversation with a girl. She was about 15 uh, in Covey's many years back. I'm going back probably 20 years and we were driving somewhere, it was a group of coveys, and she was talking in the back in, uh, at school. Uh, they'd had a discussion on it in one of their lessons, and they'd taken a vote uh, as to who expects their first marriage to be successful. And it was something like 20%. 80% expected it to be at least the second marriage before it was successful. And as I said to her, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you go into your first marriage only expecting there's a 20% chance of it's going to work, you can almost guarantee it's not going to work because your whole attitude towards it's wrong. But that's where Britain's come to, isn't it? And it's against that that we read these verses. Now, the first thing we need to know is that in Jesus' day in Israel, it was much the same. It was a contentious issue. It was an out-of-control issue. And the first thing we get of that is in verse 1 of chapter 19. I don't know if you even noticed it, but when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, what's that telling us? He's just gone into the land under the control of Herod. And what's the thing we know about Herod? He's just had John the Baptist arrested and now killed. For what? For insisting that Herod's divorce and marriage was wrong. So in society where Jesus has now moved, this is a hot subject. And right at the head of the opposition to biblical marriage, if you like, is the king. And Jesus has gone into that area, and it's there that the Pharisees choose to challenge him on this subject, not surprisingly. The second reason that it's a contentious issue 
is this. At that time, marriage and divorce was only a religious issue. It wasn't a civil issue, it was just a religious issue. So it fell under the religious parties as to how you administered it and what the rules were concerning it. And some Pharisees held strongly to the teaching of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs of his house. Some were taking it very seriously that it is only on that grounds that you can get a divorce. However, those that followed the teaching of uh, Hillel allowed that a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason under the sun, provided he gave her a certificate of divorce, provided he wrote out for her a letter saying that he divorced her, he could do it simply because he didn't find her attractive anymore, or because he didn't think she worked hard enough, or literally because she burnt the toast that morning, here you are, here's her certificate, I've divorced you. And that was the end of it. So Jesus, however he approaches this subject is going to alienate a lot of people he's going to be unpopular with a whole lot of people and I, and I guess it's against that attitude of those who believe that you could divorce your wife for anything that the question the Pharisees pose verse 3 is this is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause is it okay that to do it like these are doing it just come up with a reason and you can divorce her or is it only for certain things that you should be able to divorce your wife. In other words, it's just like 21st century Britain. Except, of course, we have the added complication of so-called same-sex marriage and uh, civil partnerships and, and those sort of things on top of it to confuse it even further, it would seem. So I want you to see that what Jesus does here is so, so very important. When the question is raised about divorce, what does he do? Does he address that question first? No, he does not. He first addresses the question of what is marriage all about? My friends, can I suggest that is the right way for us always to approach it? If someone starts to ask us about divorce, someone... Uh, starts talking to us about divorce. The first issue is, do you have a right understanding of marriage? Before you start talking about breaking it, before you start talking about ending it, what's your understanding of what marriage is all about? So here we start, marriage. Jesus immediately turns them where? Right back to the start of Genesis. The very first thing he insists upon is that it has been given by God. It is a creation ordinance, we would say. It is one of those few rules that God gave right there at creation. He says, He who created them from the beginning made them man and female and said, God said this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Now whenever we come to exegete any passage of scripture one of the all important things is to be sure of the context of the verses that we're reading. And the context here 
is that the verses he's quoting occur right back in the very opening pages of Genesis, most especially before the fall. So it can't be that God is only saying this for Israel because Israel doesn't exist when he says it. It can't be that this is God responding to the fact that man has sinned and rebelled against him because man hasn't yet sinned and rebelled against him. Now, the only conclusion we can draw is that God is saying this to humanity, for humanity, for as long as humanity lasts. In other words, it applies just as much to us today as it did to Adam and Eve in the garden when God first spoke it. Friend, it doesn't matter whether your marriage was conducted in a church or a registry office or a hotel garden. It doesn't matter if it was in this land or overseas. It doesn't matter whether it's between two Christians or between two non-Christians. If it fulfilled the criteria that God lays down in his word for marriage, then in God's sight, it is marriage. And what God says about it applies. So the first thing we discover is this. Biblical marriage is defined by God. Now we live in a day and age, don't we, where every Tom, Dick and Harry seems to think they've got their right to their say in how marriage should work. What rules do we want to have regarding marriage? Who do we want to be allowed to get married one to another? Most especially in recent days, of course, can two men marry each other? Can two women marry each other? Or does it have to be between one man and one woman? Rules as to how we can terminate it, when we can terminate it, on what grounds we can terminate it. And, of course, those rules are changing all the time. And we have to allow that as far as the civil institution of marriage is concerned, then, of course, man can change those rules and people can get married in the civil system according to whatever rules the government has got in place at that time, and they can live and call themselves married under the government's rules accordingly. But as far as God is concerned, he has designed marriage. He has laid down the rules. And only he can lay them down, and only he can change them, and he never will, because God does not change his mind. Now, as far as biblical marriage is concerned, there is one rule giver. There's one person who defines what marriage looks like. There's one person who defines who can enter into it. There's one person who defines what the intent is within marriage. And that's no human person. That is the God who created man and woman and the God who invented marriage. Biblical marriage is defined by God The second thing we see is that biblical marriage is between one man and one woman. Go back to verse 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's become a massive issue in recent years, hasn't it? Why should it be confined to one man marrying one woman? Why can't two men, if they love each other, get married? Why can't two women, if they love each other, and I put love in quotes, get married? The answer is, as far as biblical marriage is concerned, because God says not. God says it's between one man and one woman. Now, the tragedy is that that debate hasn't only occurred out there in the world where we expect things like that to occur. 
out there in the world where we can say, look, you're wrong and we're not going to practice it and we're going to encourage you not to practice it because it's not good for society. Okay, but you've gone ahead and that's the rules you want it to work under. So we accept that. We can't do anything about that. We'd love it to be different, but we accept it is. We will pray for you. But within the church, we will keep it to what God says. The tragedy is, of course, that so many denominations are now going down the route of saying, well, we're going to allow it in the church as well. Let's remember what Jesus, who Jesus is speaking to here. This, from the start of chapter 18 onwards, this is about the gospel kingdom. Jesus is saying, in effect, I know what's going on out there, but this is how it should be for you. You say you belong to me, you say you're a child of the living God, then allow God to say what God says and be obedient to what God says. Don't look to change it. Don't look to reject it. That's what the world out there is doing. Biblical marriage is between one man and one woman. But did you see as well, biblical marriage supersedes all other human relationships. It's interesting there where Jesus quotes what happened in the beginning, quotes from Genesis, that God didn't only speak of the man and his wife, did he? He spoke primarily about them, but did you notice who he also mentions? The man's mother and father. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, his father and mother, and be united to his wife. And the same, of course, is true of the wife. She leaves her mother and father and is united to the man. In other words, the marriage relationship supersedes all other human relationships. And isn't that so often one of the roots of the problems in 21st century Western marriage that the two before they get married don't recognise the fact that this relationship must and is going to supersede every other relationship that they have or that they ever will have. This one comes first no matter what. Before they start discussing anything with their mates or their parents, they discuss it with the spouse. What tends to happen as soon as problems start to arise within a marriage? Who gets involved? The man involves his mates and his parents. The woman involves her mates and her parents. And before you know it, there's this great division where he's being encouraged to stay in his position by all his side and she's being encouraged to stay in her position by all her side instead of which the two are supposed to be one flesh relating to each other. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. And then biblical marriage creates a new, unique relationship. I don't begin to pretend to understand the full meaning of of these words of God right back at the beginning. When he says, and the two shall become one flesh. Very clearly, at the very least, it means that in God's sight, these two people are no longer two distinct individuals who have no interconnection one with another, but through being married and through the sexual union that comes within marriage, they become one flesh that God looks at them as one new, unique entity. He no longer ever looks at them and says, well, that's that person and that's that person, rather that 
that is a couple who have a total interest and concern and intimate relationship in each other. And not surprisingly, therefore, it's the highest relationship that two human beings can possibly have, one with another. And the last thing we're told about biblical marriage is this, it was given for life. Verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now notice what Jesus says there because it's very important for what follows. He does not say, what therefore God has joined together, no man can separate. He's not saying I've joined them and it's an impossibility for any man to separate them. Anyone can walk away from their marriage. Easiest thing in the world these days just to say that's it I'm out and walk away no he says what God has joined together let not anyone separate woe betide anyone who breaks that which God has brought into existence God has designed it God has created it God has instituted but God has joined those two people together in it with the intent that it lasts for life. Therefore, you're rebelling against God. You're breaking what God has joined. You're going against everything that God has intended if you come along and say, right, well, I'm finished with this, and walk away. Even before that, if you begin to think, maybe this isn't going to work, Maybe I should think about alternatives. Already something has gone wrong in that marriage. You're no longer being that one flesh. You're thinking of breaking what God has intended to stay together. You hear a lot of people saying uh, the idea of a a trial separation. Or, Or just some space between us. How does that fit with the idea of being one flesh? God didn't put... As people together in marriage in order that they can see what it's like being apart again he put them together in marriage so that they can be together in marriage as soon as we think of anything else or try anything else we're already recognizing that there is something fundamentally wrong in this that God doesn't intend and God doesn't want and Jesus is saying look if you're in this gospel kingdom you shouldn't go down that path at all That's not how God designed it to be. What a challenge to us. When we live in a day and an age in a society that holds marriage in such low regard. I mean, when you quote those figures for divorce, bear in mind that half the country is not even bothering to get married to live together. They say, no, I'll avoid the issue of divorce. I just won't get married. But they don't say, but I'll be celibate. They say, but I'll just live with my partner. And against that backdrop, Jesus is calling us to make a lifelong commitment. My friends, the best thing any couple can ever do before they get married is to be absolutely convinced in their own mind that if I marry this person, it's going to be for life. It doesn't matter what happens. If she has a terrible motorbike accident tomorrow and is brain dead for the next 20 years and just is being kept alive by a machine and... and can't do anything 
or, or she's in a wheelchair and I'm having to bath her and get her around her and her mind is damaged, or vice versa, whatever it is, that person is my wife or my husband until we die. That's the best thing anyone can do and then check that the other person feels the same. And say, look, if we're going to get married, let's just for one minute put aside all the red roses and the fluffy clouds and all the rest of it. Bottom line, if we get married, it's for life. Are you happy with that or not? Because now's the time to say, what a difference it would make. But then, when we move on from here and we move into Ephesians, and if you want to turn those Ephesians 5, we get a whole new view of marriage that takes it even higher. Here's Paul writing, and uh, Ephesians chapter, chapter 5, you know, he's, he's going through different relationships and how they work out. He comes to husbands and wives. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands... In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. See, he goes back, refers back to those same verses Jesus does. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound... And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you get it? He says, what is marriage all about? He says, well, there's two ways to look at it. If you want to know what marriage should look like, look at the relationship between the church and Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ and the church. He says, because that is the perfect picture of what marriage should be like. And, he says, marriage should be the perfect picture of what the relationship between Christ and the church looked like. When I was out in Malawi, and I've told this before, but I just repeat it because I enjoyed it at the time anyway. Um, on the Saturday mornings, they had... Um, People involved in church leadership, not pastors, but sort of women's meeting leaders, uh, lay preachers and that, could come in and uh, be taught if they lived close enough to get into the college. And uh, one of the classes I had was uh, a class, and we were working through Ephesians. That was the task, the two months I was there to, to go through Ephesians and Philippians. And um, we got to Ephesians 5. Now, in the class, there were about 22 women and there were two men. I'm certain there were two men. I think there was about 22 women. And um, we get to this relationship of wives and men. Now, you need to understand in Malawi, the relationship is very different to here. Wives work till they drop, literally. 
and the men quite often sit outside their huts with their feet up watching their wives work. It's, it's that sort of patriarchal society. And so I said to him before we started to drive, I, I will try and put on one side all my cultural uh, view of marriage and I'll ask you to do the same. Let's just look at these verses and we'll start with this relationship between Christ and the church. So we looked at the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, and I said, so, so wives, your calling is to image the church in this. Just as the church submits to Christ, that's your calling, how you submit to your husband. And, and you can see the two men like, and men, your calling is to love your wives like Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? He laid down his life for the church. He, he, he went to the cross for the church. He bore the wrath of God in his body for the church. And these two men, one of them, blessed him, he's sitting there with his head in his hands. He's going, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And the women at the back are up there like, Pastor, you've got to come and preach this in our churches. I'm like, is it not like that in your church then? Is it not like that? Well, we've probably gone as bad the other way and that way and every other which way, haven't we? Now, says Paul, this is what marriage should look like. It should be a radiant picture of the relationship between the church and Christ. Do you think, do you understand what that would mean for us who are in, in the marriage? For the husband, when he sees in his wife the very picture of how the church is to Christ. When the wife sees in the husband the very picture of how Christ is to the church. No, no wife is going to have any problem submitting to her husband, I suggest, if she knows that he has always got her best interests at heart. That whatever he says, whatever he decides, whatever he pushes towards, it is on the basis that I absolutely believe, without a shadow of a doubt, that this is what is best for you as even more than it is for me. Because I love you as Christ loved the church. Do you imagine what it would say to children growing up in those homes? And we're trying to show Christ to them. We're trying to encourage them to, to trust in God and to turn to Christ at a young age. And they're getting bombarded from schools with all this about other marriage uh, ideas and, and relationships. And we're trying to tell them about what God intends if they look at us as the mother and father and say, Wow! That is so awesome! That is so beautiful! That is so different to what I see when I go around my mate's house. That's what it's like between Christ and the church. I want it. Do you imagine what it would say to our neighbours and society when they're struggling and their marriages are falling apart and they look to us and we don't need to say anything. They just see how our marriage is working and say, wow, why is that so different? My friend, you see what marriage should be like and can be like. This is God's intent for marriage. A husband should love his wife above himself. Everything he says, every time he opens his mouth, it should be with the intent, the desire, the, the purpose of, of saying what he thinks is, is best for his wife to hear. And when it comes to those points where one has to take the lead, there's no alternative. 
you know, let's say you both want to live in different places and and you can't reason it out between you. You come to that point that, well, we've either got to live there or we've got to live there. One of us has got to leave our job or whatever. And the husband says, well, I'm convinced this is the right place because I believe that it's going to be the best place for you, dear. Then the wife says, I still want to be here. This is where my heart is. I don't think I actually agree with you, but I will submit to you. Because I don't question that you're saying what you're saying out of love for me. And he's going to have to answer to God for what he says, and she's going to have to answer to God. He's going to have to answer to God for what he says, and she's going to have to answer what she does. My friend, that's what marriage should look like. Do you see, therefore, that to even consider divorce means that something's gone wrong with that? That picture is already damaged. It's already falling. It's already so much less than what God means it to be. So why divorce? We're going to move quickly. Verses 7 to 8. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Why does it all change? Because of the fall. Because with the fall, man went into a state of rebellion. And primarily that rebellion is against God. Against God and everything that God has said. So when he says here, because of your hardness of heart, he doesn't mean that because some man gets hard heart towards his wife or some wife gets a hard heart towards her husband and it goes wrong. He means because man's heart is hard towards God. Because God has said this is how it should be. In man's rebellion against God, he says, I don't want it to be like that. I'll do it my way. But even there, Jesus says, but you're wrong in the way you're quoting Moses. Moses never said you had to divorce your wife. He said you may divorce your wife. Now, according to Judaism at the time, you had to divorce your wife if she committed sexual immorality. But Jesus says, that's not what happens in the kingdom. You could still love your wife or wife. You could still love your husband. You could seek to try and work through this with them. You could seek to try and honour God in this, which would be even greater, and bring about restoration and bring about reconciliation and bring restore that relationship, which would be better by far. But, he says, yes, you are allowed to divorce your wife. But it wasn't like that from the beginning. In other words, don't lose track of the main thing. That was not what God intended. My friend, this is where Christians always got to position themselves, isn't it? Yes, okay, so there are permitted reasons why divorce can happen. But it's not what God wants to see. And my great desire for me, my great desire for my brothers and sisters, my great desire for the the gospel kingdom is that we're wanting what God wants. And we're working to, to the end that God's working to. And in marriage, that is that it should work for life. So when divorce, verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another 
commits adultery. And here Jesus gives the one ground that he says is an acceptable ground to seek divorce. You haven't got to, but if this happens, then you can do it with a clear conscience. And that is if your spouse, husband or wife, commits some sexual act outside of marriage, whatever that might be. In other words, if they violate that one flesh idea, if they break that unity that is unique to the couple, if they violate that, then Jesus says, yes, okay, in that state and that state only, you can pursue getting a divorce. And when that happens, the church needs to recognize that if one of those people were innocent in that, then they have absolutely every right to do that. And it's not for us to criticize them or to judge them. And if they then choose to remarry, then they're entitled to do that. Not that they must do that or need to do that or necessarily should do that, but if they do, they are allowed to because it was their partner, not them, their spouse in God's sight violated that marriage my friend you always see divorce as a last resort that's what Jesus is saying here it's not the first thing you jump to you know when problems start rising in marriage you don't say oh well, if it's going to be like that I'm going to get divorced he's saying it's the very 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 last resort when you can't work it out when, when there is nothing you can do and, it, and it's just reached that point where you say I've, I'm, I'm really left with, with no alternative that they're carrying on with some sexual relationship outside of the marriage and they're not repentant of it and I'm going to divorce them. We'll see just as we close very quickly an alternative life, verses 10 to 12. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Disciples obviously are thinking along the lines, wow, you mean that if I marry someone, no matter what happens, I'm married to them for life? There's no way out of it? In that case, it's better not to get married in the first place. And I guess an awful lot of people who've gone through the process of divorce will be the first to say that with hindsight, they wish they'd never married that person. It would have been better not to have married in the first place. But they didn't realise it till it was too late. Well, what's Jesus saying here? He's lifting the relationship of celibacy even above marriage. Now that goes against everything the Western world believes and probably everything against what the church historically has taught and certainly what many Christians have held that, you know, everybody, should their end goal should be that they get married. Well, that's not what Jesus says and it's certainly not what Paul says. Without any question, some of the greatest work that's been done on the mission field has been done by those like Paul and from Paul's day onwards who have put aside their right to marry in order to focus on the work of God, even as Jesus did. That, that I'm, I'm here for a task, I'm here for a mission. God has called me to this, and I will not be distracted by anything else, even marriage. 
And the tragedy is, so many Christians feel so sorry for people who've done that, like they've missed out on something. They have. They've missed out on all the blessings of marriage, but they've chosen something even greater that they'll be rewarded for. Turn with me, if you've got your Bibles there, in the last couple of minutes to 1 Corinthians 7. Paul addresses this very issue. He gives a number of reasons why it's better not to marry, but here he focuses focuses in on one. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, so he's not saying you've got to do this. He's saying, consider this. This is a... This is an option. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I am, as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I love the way way Paul's so down-to-earth and straightforward, doesn't he? No, let's cut out all the fluffy clouds and everything else from this. Look, if you're going to have trouble controlling your sexual desires, then get married. But if you can, it would be better if you say, stay single, as I am. Now, go down to verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order, and here it is, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He says, look, Christian, if your greatest desire in life is to be totally devoted to God, practical check, how are you going to find that easier to do if you're married or single? The answer is obviously if you're single. You know, what wife doesn't understand the restrictions that are placed upon her by the fact that she's got a husband and maybe children as well in regards to what she can do for the Lord? What husband doesn't understand equally well the restrictions that having a wife and children place upon him? The single person can tomorrow turn around and say, I'm going to go and become a missionary in wherever. Pack the bags and go. married person can't do that. No, Paul says, look, understand this. If you can forego the pleasures, if you can forego the privileges of marriage, provided you can control your sexual desires, then forego it so that you can be fully devoted to the Lord, which is better by far. And in case you're sitting there thinking, nah, I don't think that's what he means at all. Just as we close, look at verse 38. What are you going to do with that? So then, he who marries his betrothed does well. It's good to marry. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Doesn't that put singleness on a whole new plane? Marriage, this beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, this highest relationship that one human being can enter into with another, and alongside it, singleness where we can be totally devoted to God 
and not have any of the distractions, any of the responsibilities that go with, with marriage. And he says they're both there to honour God. They're both there to glorify God. Whichever one God's called you to. But do it in a way that honours God. Now having said all of that, I'm very mindful that I've been very privileged in my life. I'm very blessed. And some haven't. There are some who would love to be married and never had the opportunity others who've been married and against their will have been divorced and it was never their desire that that should have happened but it's happened others who are really struggling because their spouse has changed so completely I know a man who had a terrible motorbike accident and his wife cared for him I, I lost track touch with them so I don't know whether it went to death but certainly he was in a wheelchair and he could only say a few words and they were rarely made much sense And that happened when he was quite a young man. We're going to sing as we close, Everyone Needs Compassion.